Hey guys, welcome to our 55th episode of A True Crime Couple. I'm Kay. And I'm John. Before the show begins, we just want to thank everyone out there supporting us. We also have a message for our Patreon supporters. There's a new episode that we just released last weekend that covers the abduction case of two boys in New South Wales, Australia. One of those boys would survive the torture he was put through, and the other would be buried alive. However, the intensity of the case doesn't stop at the crime itself. We promise you'll love that episode. It's it's really a good one. It's a good one, and it's very, you know, in my opinion, I think it's very conversational. We really um, we really got into it on that one. I like it. Yeah, I do too. Doing the research for that one kind of like turned my stomach. So did this case. Yeah. So I've... I've had an upset stomach for two weeks now. <laughs> yeah, it's been a, it's been a rough uh, two episodes, but it it's has. okay. And again, um, if you want to donate to our Patreon, you will get full length bonus episodes each month, um, one or two, depending on how much you're donating. So if you do want to be a Patreon, you can go to patreon.com slash true crime couple. Okay, I think we should hop right into this one. What Let's do you get think? It done. Let's do it. Okay. This is a case that I've always wanted to cover, but like many of the other well-known true crime cases out there, it's daunting to take on. So there's a lot of people that have very strong opinions about this case both ways, because not only is it a horrific crime, one of the most horrific that we've ever covered, but it's also a question of innocence case. And because of this, I wanted to take my time researching it and covering all of our bases, so it doesn't seem like we're biased to one side or the other. And usually when we cover these cases, we always get that feedback that we were biased to one side or the other, but what we really try to do is go over the facts and present the evidence that was decided at trial, so we can kind of get into the mind of the jurors and understand why they made the decision that they did, and then we'll cover the afterwards of the trial as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I... And I... I just want to say that, you know, sometimes I feel like Kay and I sometimes maybe are on the same side with, like, whether it be, like, if someone was innocent or guilty. I think it's just because uh, we're both, like, very like-minded, and I feel like sometimes people might think we go a certain way, like Kay mentioned earlier. I just, we're just very much on the same page sometimes. This one we're kind of split on, though. Yes, we are. So it'll be interesting. Yeah. Okay, so here goes nothing, right? (laughs) It's the night of June 4th, 1983, when William and Marianne Hughes were approached by their 10-year-old son, Chris. Chris had just finished the fifth grade at a nearby Catholic school and was enjoying the beginning of his summer break. Chris was a happy boy who loved teasing his younger brother and had dreams of swimming for the University of Southern California and then eventually on to the Olympics. But that night, his goals were more short-term. He wanted to have a sleepover with his best friend. Now, when you're a kid and you want to have a sleepover or you want to have your friend stay over for dinner, the best tactic that you can use is to ask for permission with your friend right next to you. It's something that we've all done. And it's a little harder for your parents to say no then. And that's the exact approach that was used by the boys on that day. Chris Hughes and his best friend, 8-year-old Josh Ryan, rode their bikes up to Chris's parents while they were enjoying themselves at the annual barbecue that was held by George Blade for the families in the Chino Hills area. The two boys begged and gave their toothy grins. They wanted to know if Chris was allowed to sleep at Josh's house. They had already asked Josh's parents, and they had said yes. 
The Hughes knew the Ryans very well and genuinely liked the family. Chino Hills was an affluent rural community, and their son had not had anyone to play with in the area until the Ryans moved up the road from them. Although the boys were a few years apart, they got along very well. When you're young, it's more about proximity than it is age, really. They liked playing on the Ryan Ranch. There was a lot of land to explore and horses to take care of. So because they were in a great mood, because of the barbecue, and because they knew the Ryan so well, and because they wanted to make their son happy, they said yes to the sleepover. But there was one stipulation. Chris needed to be home on Sunday, early, so they could all get ready and head off to church. But the next time Marianne Hughes would see her son would be on an autopsy table. Police say the suspect, 31-year-old Jeffrey Dahmer, has confessed to the killings of 11 people whose remains were found in his apartment. We are all evil in some form or another, are we not? Lock your doors, lock your windows. If you have the ability to provide additional security devices, then by all means do so. The Ryans were good people. Doug and Peggy Ryan met each other in 1970 and married later that same year on December 20th. Doug was a former Marine. During his service, he was a member of the military police. And in addition to his serving the country, Doug was a chiropractor, as was his wife, Peggy. In fact, that was how they met, at an alumni party for their old school. Peggy was so proud to be a chiropractor. After all, it was in her blood, as her mother was in the same profession. The couple initially settled in Santa Ana, California. Peggy opened her own practice and for a short time, Doug worked there as well. The couple was also interested in horses, Arabian horses to be exact, and dreamed of one day owning a ranch and breeding horses. Their neighbors in Santa Ana weren't too pleased living next to horses. It was this fact, and Peggy becoming pregnant, that pushed the family to move to Olympia, Washington, where they could have more land for their growing family. In 1973, their daughter Jessica was born. Two years later, they had a son, named Joshua. The family was having some financial issues in Olympia. Peggy's practice wasn't doing well, and they wanted more room for the horses. They were even thinking about beginning to breed them. Eventually, the family found a property that would give them everything they wanted in Chino Hills, California. The location was perfect because it had a rural feel while still being an affluent suburb of Los Angeles. So this was a perfect spot for the chiropractic practice as well as the horses. Their hilltop ranch sat on five acres of property, and their three-bedroom, two-bathroom house was perfect for their family. The Ryans were known to be a very tight-knit family. They got along very well with each other and everyone else in the community. And this is why the Ryans were a shoo-in to the annual barbecue held at the Blade households. Blade lived a few miles away from the Ryans in Los Serenos. It is reported that the family of four and their one guest, left the barbecue between 9 and 9.30. So that's the last time that anyone saw the Ryans and Chris Hughes was at the, them leaving the barbecue. Okay. The next morning came and went. Chris was not home to have breakfast and get ready with the family as they prepared for and went to church. His parents were upset because they had made him promise that he would do so. As the service approached, the Hughes chose to leave without their son, assuming that the boys got carried away riding the horses or playing on the property. 
When the family returned, Marianne tried to call the ride home. However, she kept getting the busy signal. This is way before call waiting. Thinking the family was on the phone, she decided to try back again in a little bit. She waited a few minutes and called again. Still busy. She waited another few minutes and called again, but she was still getting the busy signal. Marianne chose to drive up the road and knock on their neighbor's door. But when she didn't get an answer, she drove back home. When she returned home, she told her husband that there's something wrong up at the Ryans. It's way too quiet. It's usually full of noise and laughter, especially when the boys are together. She made a second trip to the house, but there was still no answer at the door. This time when she returned, she told her husband that she wanted him to go up there and check it out. So William agreed. When William Hughes drove up to the ranch, he noticed right away that the family truck was in the driveway but their station wagon was not. Maybe they went out, he thought, and he knocked on the front door, and like his wife, he didn't get a response. Not satisfied, he began to walk around the perimeter of the house. In the back of the house was a jacuzzi on a stone patio. In front of that were sliding glass doors that led directly into the Ryan's master bedroom. He knew he probably shouldn't, but he really wanted to know where his son was, so he leaned into the sliding glass door and cupped his hands on either side of his eyes so he could see inside. What he saw almost stopped his heart. He saw his son and Peggy Ryan lying on the floor. Blood pooled around them. Doug was kneeling, almost in a praying position, slumped over the bed, covered in blood, with even more surrounding him. Between Peggy and Doug was Josh. He was moving slightly, his hands grasping at his neck. William desperately tried to open the sliding door, but flustered he didn't realize he was pulling at the wrong door. He was trying to open the fixed side. So he ran around to the back kitchen door, and when he realized it wasn't open, he kicked the door in. Once William got into the house, he headed straight for the master bedroom. When he reached the hall that led to the bedrooms, he was stopped by the sight of Jessica, just months older than his own son, lying dead and brutalized on the floor. He had to get past her and check on Chris. He had to see if Chris was okay, and Josh... Josh seemed to still be alive. In the bedroom, he ran first to his son and reached out for him. Immediately, he knew he was gone. His body was cold and stiff to his shaking touch. Josh was making sounds close by, and William rushed over to the boy and asked him who did this. But Josh, who was in a state of shock, couldn't answer his question. Unknown to William, Josh had been lying on the ground for hours, desperately attempting to hold the wound that stretched across his throat, closed, as he slowly bled out from other wounds on his body. Josh wasn't able to answer his friend's father. All he was able to do was make gurgling sounds. Understanding the severity of Josh's situation, William made his way to the phone, the phone that was covered in blood, and off the hook. However, it wasn't working. He had to drive to the nearest neighbor's house. The police and first responders did arrive shortly after the phone call was made, and when paramedics arrived, they made the call that if Josh were to survive, he would need to be flown by helicopter to Loma Linda Ho University Hospital. While Josh was being helicoptered away and William went home and tried to somehow explain what was happening to his wife, the San Bernardino County crime scene investigators began their process of collecting evidence. The attack on the Ryan family and their house guest, Chris Hughes, was barbaric. Each person suffered from both chopping and stabbing injuries. The weapon of the murderer or murderers being a hatchet, a large knife, and an ice pick. 
Based on the autopsy report and the crime scene investigation, it could be determined that Doug and Peggy Ryan had been attacked first. This made sense because they are the dominant occupants of the house. Doug Ryan was attacked in his bedroom. He had 37 stab wounds in his upper torso and his head. His wife and mother of his two children, Peggy, had 32 wounds in the same places. We would later learn that it was the screams of Peggy that woke the children. She also had what appeared to be like rug burn, so she was dragged for a short amount of time. While Josh was trying to wake his sleeping friend, his sister must have run to check on her mother. And while running towards her parents' bedroom, Jessica, just about to turn 11 years old, met the killer in the hallway. Jessica received the most rage from the killer, sustaining 46 stabbing and chopping wounds throughout her tiny body. Jessica also had another interesting wound. She had a few puncture holes in her chest that were made by a weapon similar to an ice pick. The information about what happens next is shaky, but from the memory of Josh, Chris went in the room first. He remembers seeing a shadow and hearing Chris call out his name twice, and then he heard the attack. Ten-year-old Chris Hughes died from 25 stab wounds on his body. Josh then reports being attacked himself. He is stabbed and his throat is slashed, his body falling between his lifeless parents. And after the killings, the murderer ripped a can of Olympia Gold beer from a six-pack in the fridge and left it blood-stained on the edge of a hanging shelf. That's crazy. That's brutal. That is. It's one of the most brutal crimes that we heard. And I think that when you look at the crime, you're looking at a frenzied attack. But also, you need to have someone who is pretty dominant to take on this attack because it would take a lot of physical strength and i know doug ryan could have been caught off guard but we are talking about a former marine and a farmer so he was in a lot of shape oh yeah i mean it would have taken a lot to take him down so i mean it would it had to have been aggressive you know yeah because you're not going to take somebody down like that just like going in there half cocked and i have to say it's it's a brutal crime scene we will put pictures up but the blood is just covering the bedroom everywhere. And from really, we understand only from the testimony of William Hughes, how the bodies were positioned, because unfortunately, the crime scene was dismantled a little bit too early um, before the people could collect most evidence, especially to figure out the exact order in which people died and how they died. That wasn't able to be determined 100%. But from what William Hughes said, the way Doug was kind of leaning over the bed, it it appears that he was attacked from behind first. Right. Which I would say that kind of makes sense. Also, you got to remember that the integrity of the crime scene was destroyed instantly the moment that he saw those bodies and pretty much entered the residence. And he went in. Well, I mean... But you have... Well, I was going to say, but you have to remember, though, that... One of the one of the children were still alive, so I think anybody would have done that if they saw somebody. Right. I, yeah. And their own kid. Well, true, of course. But I'm saying if you see somebody else alive in an active crime scene where there's dead bodies, you're gonna go in. I guarantee you, if that if someone wasn't alive, I don't think he would have entered. I think he would have ran as fast as he could to go call the cops to get yeah. first responders to come over there and check out the scene. That's true. I know what you're saying. I think that. Because it looked like Josh was still moving, he had a hope that Chris was still alive. Right. And that's why I think he entered exactly. it the way he did. Exactly. But 
William Hughes entering the crime scene is the least of our worries because we're going to learn, as in most cases, the San Bernardino County Sheriff's Department kind of messes with the integrity of the crime scene further then. Because if one person enters the crime scene, that's completely okay because you can collect their DNA and then rule out any samples that you find. But we are talking about 1983. So it's true. It's not, there's not DNA testing like we have today. Um, it's a very basic um, determining of blood types. There is a type of testing that could determine enzymes, which is a further breakdown for more than just the blood typing. But fingerprints is best evidence that we could go by in 1983 right and that's i mean i'm sure there was a lot of that as well yeah especially if people were walking in and out so and the thing is we have a lot of victims here and like i'm sure you guys can remember from the jeffrey mcdonald's case when you have a lot of victims who are murdered in the same room and blood was shed the way the way it was it's very difficult to interpret whose blood is whose and where i know the mcdonald's case is really different because some crazy reason that case is an anomaly because every member of the family had a different type of blood. But in this case, most family members had the same type of blood. Um, and I know I'm a little rusty because I feel like it's forever ago, but I believe the Ketty Cabin murders were the same thing where there's multiple weapons used, right? Yes, multiple weapons so, used. Yeah, so like in that case, just like this one, there's different spreads of blood and patterns in other places because... Correct. Of the different weapons used. Like, for example, you had the axe. Just, you know, you have... Uh, they think it was a hatchet. Ha- well, ha- I'm sorry. Yeah. Right. Hatchet. You know, you had a knife and you had a possible ice pick. Ice pick. So you're going to have different arterial spreading, spraying and different patterns based because, you know, one's a puncture, one's a stab, and yeah. one's a chop. Yeah. So, like we saw in, in the kitty cab murders. So Exactly. And um, this brings up the question of whether or not you think there was one attacker or there was several. That's a question we'll get into a little bit later, but for, I mean, it's five people. They're hard to take down as one person, especially with three weapons, unless what I really would love to know with this case, and we weren't able to find it out because the crime scene was dismantled, was were some of these wounds suffered post-mortem? Like, was the first weapon used a hatchet and then the killer went back with a knife? Or do you know what I'm saying? So that would have really helped us out knowing. Definitely. I think that that would have uh, determined whether or not it was more than one person. Right. So, yeah. Okay. So before we get a little further into this case, because it's getting really good, let's take a break to hear from our first sponsor. Okay. Let's get back to the show. Each of the victims had a moderate amount of food in their stomachs, meaning that the attacks on the family took place any time between one to three hours after the family ate. This means that the family was attacked shortly after returning to their home from the barbecue. The next bit of information is going to be controversial to the case and its aftermath. The medical examiner is going to state that in his opinion, the injuries on all of the victims were sustained within minutes of each other. This can be interpreted in two ways. The injuries on each individual happened quickly or that the attack as a whole happened at the same time. The latter implies that there is more than one killer. The medical examiner has stated that he meant the attacks happened quickly versus all at once. And to me, this implies that he's stating that he thinks that it could have been one killer, but it could have also been more than one killer. So is it possible for one person to do this? 
like we said before, we have to first take a look at the weapon choice. And based on the autopsy report, it's clear that there was at least three weapons used. (sighs) Could one killer do that? Well, I look at it this way. There's so many, like, very small variables that together make a very big picture. So, I mean, if you think about it, I believe, if my math is correct, there was 140 stab wounds. Right, around Well, I'm sorry, not stab wounds, just wounds. Okay? We'll just classify it as that. Mm -hmm. You had four victims, and let's just say, and four victims, three weapons, and let's just say they were done within about four to five minutes. Like, this whole thing took place within four to five minutes, let's just say. I don't know how that would be possible, in my opinion, Mm -hmm. for it to be one. Because that would mean that as this one person is doing all this, he's what? He's rotating weapons out of his pockets to try to perform all these acts on all these people. Not to mention, the father was an ex-Marine, military police. He wasn't a small dude. So I I don't think it's a one-person job based on, like I said, 140 wounds, four victims, Within maybe five minutes, three weapons. Yeah, I would say five victims because Josh was... And five victims. Okay. Yeah. Uh, right. So it would have been five victims. Mm-hmm. So even that, that's even more towards my you know, explanation as to why I don't think it's one person. I get that. I think that it was definitely was a frenzied attack. I think we can never put something past the realm of possibility because covering all of these true crime cases and me being such a weirdo and listening to a million true crime podcasts and watching id like only there are cases where one person has used multiple weapons so an example of that would be i don't know if anyone's familiar but there was a a murder that took place at a lululemon store which is an athletic wear store where one person attacked another with nine separate weapons and it was done from what I can remember regarding the case, to kind of make it look like there was more than one attacker, so to throw police off their trail. Right. So like I said before, maybe it would be it would really be beneficial for us to know when the wounds were given. Was it all at once or with the three separate weapons or was it done post-mortem, some of it? Another thing I want to just mention before I forget, because I have a tendency to do that, mm-hmm. sorry, is that unless this guy was like John Wick or something, you know, he. you have to remember, if he was fighting with the father, let's just say he was fighting with the father, then that would have given the other people to a chance to get away. Right. And that's why, once again, I'm sorry to keep repeating myself, I think it's more than one. Because if, let's say, the father or even the mother and father were fighting off this one attacker, those children could have, they would have woken up from the screams, which one of them did. And then they would have, like, they would have been like, oh, get out of the house. And they would have left. Right. That's there would have been more commotion. I think either he was surprise attacked, if anything, or there was more than one person. And he was fighting off more than one person. I think whether there was one person or several, I think the father was just surprise attacked, period, because of the way his body was found. And that most of the wounds are going to be sustained on the back of his body. So right. I think he was attacked from behind. Now, if this one person is a big guy and he takes the father out i don't think it's out of the realm of possibilities that he takes the father out in the bedroom the wife comes in he then attacks her and then the children come at him one by one and the oldest of these children is 10 years old so it's i think it would be easy for an one adult person to take out three children i think the the complications would come in the with the parents so vital information would we would need to know was, was Doug Ryan attacked first and then Peggy came in to check on him? 
or was this attack while they were both in the bedroom? Because then if they were both in the bedroom and it was one attacker, I think Peggy would have sustained more additional wounds than just a rug burn. Like she would have tried to fight him off while her husband was being attacked. But those, you know what I mean? But I want to also say that those rug burns could also be from a struggle, not just being dragged. No, that's what I'm saying. Okay. That I think it is from a struggle. Okay, okay. But I'm saying if it was just one person, I think she would have sustained more injuries because she would have been trying to fight while he was attacking her husband. Okay, I get what you're you saying. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. It's it's an interesting one. Well, it's good to have a, a you know two different takes on something. So right. So I mean. What we walk away from is it could be one person, it could be several, depending on the way the victims kind of came at this person or persons. And it is, there are precedents of cases where one killer has used multiple weapons. It's not unheard of. So some people like to say that's exact evidence that it's more than one person. But I mean, we've seen it several times in a lot of cases. Luckily, Josh Ryan survived his injuries. Investigators thought that this was going to be their key to catching the killer. So as soon as his doctors allowed him to talk, investigators thought that this was going to be their key to catching the killer. So as soon as the doctors allowed the detectives in, they were right there in the room asking him what took place that night. Hours after his surgery, Josh was asked what happened. He told investigators that three white or Mexican men had committed the crime. And so the investigation began. And because of the attention that this case was receiving and the brutality of it all, the sheriff of San Bernardino County, Sheriff Floyd Tidwell, was very involved in the case. The only thing that the police could think of as a motive was the fact that the Ryan station wagon had been stolen from their property. However, this was a bit of a stretch too, because the Ryans were known to have always kept their keys in their cars, both the truck and the station wagon. So as far as the police were concerned, there was zero motive here. And the police knew that Josh was going to be a tough eyewitness because of all the head wounds and fuzzy memory that he did have. There was nothing missing from the house, and it seemed to be just a random act of extreme violence. As the police continued to collect evidence and statements from those in the surrounding areas and those who knew the families, the pressure to close this case and put the rural town at ease was weighing down on them. On the same day the bodies were discovered, a town resident named Ellis Bell discovered a hatchet on the side of the road just down the street from the Ryan home. The hatchet had blood and hair from the victims on it, mainly Doug and Jessica Ryan. However, it was lacking any fingerprints. Nearby the hatchet, a blood-stained tan t-shirt was found. It's interesting because when you see the pictures of the shirt, And, of course, we'll put that up on Instagram and Twitter as well. There is blood on it, yes, but but not a whole lot of blood. Now, if you look at the scenes from the Ryan house, which is covered in blood, there's blood everywhere. It's on the walls. It's on the doorframe. It's smeared all over the walls. Um, In other places, it's spattered in violent patterns everywhere. So for the person who committed this crime to be wearing a t-shirt in my opinion i think it would be covered in more blood yeah you would think i mean with all the all the you know spraying of blood and Correct. just it being on you if you're res- wrestling around with somebody and stuff it would be all over your unless shirt. it was someone who was just there yeah do you know what i'm saying i guess so yeah so it's, it's an interesting find 
As police continue their investigation, they receive a phone call from a man named Larry Lease. Now, Larry owns the home that overlooks the Ryan house. The best way I can explain it to you is that there are two pretty large hills. The Ryan house is on one hill, and what will become known as the Lease house is on the other hill. And in between the two properties is a valley full of bramble. And the properties are approximately 126 yards away from each other. So at the time of the murders, the lease house was supposed to be unoccupied, as the previous occupant, Kathleen Belbia, who was an employee of lease, had moved out at the end of May. Belbia said that she wanted to leave the house in good condition for her employer. So on May 30th and on June 1st, she visited the property for the last time to clean and vacuum the house. That's a nice tenant. Very nice tenant. I also think this is important when it comes to evidence collection because we know nothing had been left from the previous occupant. However, despite the fact that the house was supposed to be vacant, Lease informed police that there were some things that he thought the police should go take a look at because it seems to be connected to the murders. There was a sheath found on the floor in the bedroom that Belbia had been staying in that matches the hatchet that was found on the road with the victim's blood and hair on it. Also, in the cabinet of that room was a box, like a pill box, of roll-right loose tobacco, which is prison-issued tobacco. And this is what investigators check with the Chino Institute for Men, a minimum security prison that was located five miles away from the Ryan and Lee's home. Authorities at the prison stated that there were three people who had recently broken out of the prison and one of the people that was named as someone who broke out of that prison was was a man named Kevin Cooper. He was going by an alias at the time, but his real name is Kevin Cooper. Two days before the murders, Cooper escaped from the minimum security prison. According to telephone records, two phone calls were made from the lease home to the Los Angeles area telephone of Yolanda Jackson. The first call began on June 3rd at 12.17 a.m. and lasted for one hour and 20 minutes. The second call was also placed to Jackson, but only took four minutes. Another two calls were placed to Diane Williams of the Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania area. The first call to Williams was placed on June 3rd at 11.46 a.m. and lasted three minutes. The second was made just before 8 p.m. on June 4th and this call lasted for 34 minutes. The call was made only an hour before the Ryans and Chris Hughes left the Blade Barbecue the night of the murders. So it was of high importance for the police to talk to these two women. Both Miss Jackson and Miss Williams were contacted by police and asked what these conversations were about. Yolanda Jackson stated that she had actually went to go visit Cooper at the Chino Institute for Men, also known as CIM, on May 30th. She said that when she received the phone call on June 3rd, he told her that he simply walked out of prison. He asked her, in what she thought was a joking manner, but she knew he was serious, to lend him money and ask where he should go next. She said that she didn't know what he should do and that she didn't have any money. She said the first phone call ended because he wanted to go smoke a cigarette. When he finished, he called her back, but they only talked for a few more additional minutes. She admitted that during the call, Cooper continued to ask her to borrow money, but again, she said she didn't have any. 
Diane Williams was told by Cooper not that he escaped from prison, but but that he had been released because of a new law that was passed, and he needed money. Williams told him that she didn't have any money right then, but that maybe she would be able to get some. Williams called her again the next day, right before the killings. She informed him that she had not been able to get any money. She remembers telling him not to be mad at her because of it, because she said she was a little afraid of Cooper. But Williams reveals something next that would be extremely helpful to police. She tells investigators that she actually just received a phone call from Cooper on June 6th. This is after the murders. It was a collect call from Tijuana, Mexico. That was where he was able to go by hitchhiking, he said. Police were anxious to get a hold of Cooper because they did find evidence in the Lee's house that they wanted to ask him about. The following pieces of evidence were found in the Lee's household. A sheath that matches the hatchet found in the road that had the victim's blood and hair on it. The tobacco in the closet. A blood-stained khaki green button in the bedroom. This button is identical to the one found on the CIM-issued uniforms. Because of the technology that was present in 1983, there was a way to test for the type of blood and whether or not someone was a discreter or a non-discreter. However, it could only be determined that the blood on the button came from either the victims or Cooper himself. And I'm just going to add here that Cooper does state that when he escaped and he was on his way to the lease house, that he had fallen in the bramble and cut his hand really badly. He's saying that's what accounted for all of the blood that was found in the lease home. There was also a blood-stained rope that was found in the bedroom closet that Cooper was sleeping in. The rope was similar but not identical to the length of blood-stained rope found in the driveway of the Ryan property. A luminol backing test was also completed in the lease house, and blood was detected on the shower walls, bathroom sink, nearest the bedroom that Cooper was sleeping in. The blood was found around two to five feet from the floor. There was also a footprint left on the sill of the shower. The footprint belonged to Cooper as well. There was also four positive luminol reactions on the rug in the hallway leading to the bedroom and more reactions in the closet and the bathroom sink. Now, please be aware that we got some 1983 luminol testing here. So I want to be clear that this could indicate the presence of blood, but not guarantee it. Hair was also found in the drain of the bathroom tub. There was hair in the drain that was matted and appeared to be there for a long time. However, there were newer hairs that were not attached to the matted hair that appeared to be the same consistency that belonged to Jessica and Doug Ryan. They say that Doug Ryan's hair was very um, different from all the other hairs because he had red hair. Okay. However, I find this evidence to be kind of a long stretch, the hair in the tubs. Yeah, I mean, everybody sheds a little bit. Especially because you can't match hairs. I mean, if you nowadays, if you have like the cuticle or the follicle of the hair, you could do DNA testing. You could possibly do DNA testing from the shafts of hair, but it's only if there's something that's present. I don't know the exact word. I'm not an expert here by any means, but it's very difficult to find an exact match of hair. So... I think that's this is a complete stretch. The hair found, yeah, in the, that is weird because most some people yeah. have like clumps of hair in the sink. They, you know, what uh, or you know the drain, right? That's stupid. So based on all that information, it makes sense that investigators, at the very least, want to speak to Kevin Cooper and you know bring him back to jail that he escaped from. You know, yeah, you know, no big deal, no big deal. 
Okay, so let's talk about who Kevin Cooper is and how we got from his childhood to Tijuana, Mexico. Kevin Cooper was born Richard Goodman in January of 1958 near Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. When he was an infant, he was placed in an orphanage by his mother. He was adopted at six months of age by Melvin and Esther Cooper. His adopted parents renamed him Kevin Cooper. Cooper claims that he suffered physical abuse at the hands of his adopted parents, and this caused him to get mixed up in illegal things, causing him to be placed in juvenile custody. However, that record has since been expunged, so we don't know exactly what crimes he committed. At 19 years old, he was found guilty of burglary in Pittsburgh and had to serve 18 months in prison. Over the next five years after his release, Cooper burglarized and was sentenced to jail two additional times. However, he was released on probation in 1982. After his release, Cooper burglarized a home in Pennsylvania. However, during his crime, he was interrupted by the high school-aged girl who lived in the house. He kidnapped her, stole her car, and drove her to a nearby park where he raped her. The court sentenced him to time in a Pennsylvania psychiatric facility, hoping that the man could seek help instead of just receive punishment. However, Cooper escaped from the facility in late 1982 and fled to Los Angeles, California. While living in L.A., he went by the alias of David Troutman. Now, when he was arrested in CIM and he escaped, his, he, everyone thought his name was David Troutman. So that was the initial name that CIM gave San Bernardino Sheriff's Office. They said David Troutman escaped. They didn't know his real name's Kevin Cooper. That's so crazy that in nineteen in nineteen the nineteen eighties, oh my god, there's no like oh let's uh, check this out and yeah, make it's sure like, that might not be his name. Yeah, let's just make sure he's not giving us an alias. Right. Nope. Well, while living in the area, he committed two burglaries. So he escapes the psychiatric facility and commits two additional burglaries, and that was why he was in CIM. He was sentenced to four years in prison as David Troutman in late April of nineteen eighty three. And it was on June 2nd, 1983, that he escaped from CIM by climbing through a hole in the fence and walking away from prison. It was then that he made his way to the Lee's house. Now, in my um, like research into Cooper's times in prisons or different facilities, he actually had 12 escape attempts, and it's clear that two were successful. I mean, I'll tell you what, for being prisons and facilities that deal with mental patients... That's pretty good odds that, he, that he's yeah. getting out of, I out also of these facilities. Think, I mean, what it is was they were really, you're in a psychiatric facility, so it is, it's going to be minimum security. So they were really trying to get him help in Pennsylvania, and it's a shame that he left. But, and that's why he was placed in a minimum security prison in California was because they didn't know about his previous escape attempts, obviously, because he was going by a different alias. And that's why he was able to take advantage of where he was placed. It's smart. On his part. Yeah. For the time. Oh, yeah. Cooper claimed that he left the lease house when it got dark on June 4th. And of course, we know if he did, it would have been after 8 p.m. because this is when he placed his last phone call. So if his phone call was placed, it was it was like 754. And if he was on the phone with her for 32 minutes, that was the latest, the earliest he could have left the house. So it was 830 and on was when he would have had to leave. Like, you can't say he left earlier than that. No, because he was on the phone. Right. So it kind of places him in the area around the time of 
when the crime could have taken place. Right. He said that he hitchhiked from Chino Hills to Mexico, which is a 130-mile trip. He made it to Tijuana at 4.30 p.m. on June 5th. He paid for a five-day stay at Hotel Enza in quarters, as per hotel records. Um, That's why the manager remembers him, because he paid in quarters, and he got these quarters from a purse that he stole from someone. While Cooper is in Mexico, the police in Chino Hills have been really busy. First, like many of the cases we cover, we know that brutal crimes attract a lot of people, and a lot of police want to be involved, and this is no exception. The sheriff's department contaminated the crime scene by allowing 70 plus people, 70, 70, to walk throughout the Ryan house. And what do we say all the time about crime scenes that this happens to? Well, we do always say that we have to think of the time frame. We know nowadays that we have DNA testing that could exonerate somebody or it could prove their guilt. So we know that we need to secure a crime scene. Whereas back in 1983, they had no knowledge of this DNA testing. So the security of a crime scene didn't mean as much to them as it, as it does to us now. But I will say 70 people is extremely excessive. Right. I mean, you can't tell me. That could be like half a department somewhere. You know exactly. what I mean? <laughs> oh, my God. It's more than probably the town that we live in. Yeah, probably. Police force. Now, what is terrible about this is because one piece of key evidence in this case is going to be shoe impressions. Okay. So it's just I don't like the fact that 70 people walked through the house and now you want to talk about shoe impressions. Right. I mean, you know, so it's kind of like Hinter K-Fact 1983. Yeah. It is. It's crazy, right? <laughs> and a lot of the evidence that was found was found after several searches, not just the first. And that's very making a murderer feel to it. You know what I mean? But I mean, there were so many people there. The searches were probably different. But I mean, someone just can't take a sheath out of nowhere. But the sheath was found on the second search. Yeah. And then it goes. But then at the same time, it, it is goes touchy. Yes. It goes to this, that making a murder. It really does. Because that's going to make people think that there could be a possibility that people are planting evidence on Kevin Cooper. Yeah, precisely. Reasonable doubt. Right. And if reasonable doubt is created, then you know how valid is the prosecution's case against the defendant. Right. Okay, let's take a break to hear from our second sponsor. All right, let's get back to the show. So police also received another tip by way of a phone call on June 9th. So now we're going to kind of get away from Cooper and into other possible suspects. At this point, Cooper's still in Mexico. The phone call came in from Diane Roper. She said that she thinks her ex-boyfriend committed the murders with his two friends. His name is Lee Furrows. She said that he's always been abusive and angry, but when he came home that night, he was even more agitated than he usually was, and he had blood all over him. She said it was dark, so she didn't really realize, but he left his coveralls in her closet, and when she went to go like do the wash like days later, she realized that there was blood on them, and that's when she made the phone call. She said that when he left the house that day, he was wearing a tan t-shirt with a pocket on the breast. Um, But he wasn't wearing it when he came back. And to prove it all, she wanted to bring the coveralls to the police. She also said that Furrows was missing a hatchet from his back porch. And when the tan shirt was shown to Roper once she went to the police station, she confirmed that she believed it was Furrows because she was the one who had bought that shirt for him at the local Kmart. 
other interesting pieces of evidence that exist to support the fact that Lee Furrows and two others committed these crimes against the Ryan family is the fact that three witnesses who do name themselves and have come forward in court and to police have said that they saw Furrows and two other men wearing bloody clothing in the bar the night of the murder. There was also several people who told police that they saw three men driving a station wagon the night of the murder, but they couldn't confirm if it was a station wagon owned by the Ryan family. So why would Furrows have motive to commit these crimes? Well, he worked for a man named Clarence Ray Allen, who owned a security company. Allen had a dispute with the Ryan family over the sale of a horse that he had purchased from them. Arabian horse breeds are one of the most expensive, and Alan was not satisfied with the cost and condition of the horse he purchased. Alan also had an Arabian um, horse farm. So Alan and Furrows are no strangers to violence. So the following story is a sidetrack, but it's a very needed sidetrack, and it's also very strange. In July of 1974, Franz Market in Fresno, California, was burglarized. Around $15,000 was stolen. That is the equivalent of $78,000 today. Roger Allen and seven others were responsible for the crime. When Roger Allen's girlfriend, Mary Sue Kitts, found out what happened, she was upset because she was close friends with the son of the owners of the store. Mary, upset, told her friend so the son of the owner, that her boyfriend and his accomplices were the ones who committed the burglary. And her boyfriend's father, Clarence Allen, was behind the whole thing. So Clarence Allen has kind of like this like gang of people who work for him, who like do his bidding. They describe him kind of as like a like a gang leader versus the owner of a security firm. So they did this robbery for him. Once confronted by the family, so once the family finds out, they confront Clarence Allen and ask for their money back. Clarence Allen was furious. He asked his employees and closest associate, Lee Furrows, to murder Mary Sue in retaliation for telling their secret. Now, this is a girl who lives with his son. Furrows claims that Allen threatened to kill him if he didn't commit the murder. So Furrows strangled the 17-year-old girl to death, cut up her body, and weighed down the pieces and put them in the Kern Canal. In 1977, Clarence Allen was convicted for the burglary and the murder of Mary Sue and was sentenced to life in prison. Because Furrows gave evidence against Allen and said that his life was threatened, he was only convicted of second-degree murder. After his conviction... Allen ordered the murders of all of the eight witnesses that testified against him during the trial, including Lee Furrows and the family that owned Franz Market. In 1980, two hired hitmen murdered the friend of Mary Sue and the son of the owners, as well as two other teenage store employees. A fourth victim was shot but survived. For this, Allen was given the death penalty and was executed in 2006. So, what the heck? That is so... That's, like, absolutely crazy. That is crazy. I mean, you're ordering these hits on people, and just people are just doing it. This is a true crime story within a true crime story. It's actually insane. Yeah. Yeah. 
So this is Lee Furrow's history. We're not just talking about some guy who's like, oh, nobody really likes him. He's kind of a dick. He's a murderer. Yeah. And he's admitted to it. And the person he killed for is also someone who had a conflict with the Ryan family. But then, like, I'm thinking, would Alan kill over a dispute with a horse? Yeah, 100%. I think so. If he's going to kill these people in cold blood and feel no remorse. But why would he... But Furrows is in not good graces with him. So would Furrows really commit this murder for him? I mean, I don't think it's out of the realm of possibility. Like, maybe he was trying to win back his favor with him? It's possible. Like I said, I mean, there's no, like... I think with these people so far in the story, I don't think anything is can be thrown past them. Like, I mean, I think they like could Like, anything is possible yes. in this story. Isn't that a crazy, like, aside, though? Yeah. So, another side note is that the station wagon that goes missing from the Ryan house is found in Long Beach, California. This is within miles from Furrow's stepmother's house. Five miles, exactly. Which could be possible because Roper says that Furrow's did not stay with her the night of the murders. However, he is seen at the bar for hours. So I don't know if there's enough time to make that trip from Chino Hills to Long Beach, California. And because we know the whereabouts of the car, Roper admits to police that um, her and Furrows are into drugs. And Furrows was doing a lot of drugs that night. They're also into white supremacy. And she was planning on ending their off-again, on-again relationship. She claimed that he always got violent. And one time he even took a shot at her so then now here's another thing um if you're going to bring this these coveralls as evidence to the police or even if you're going to present them in trial i don't think they're going to hold up well because you have this woman although she is a victim of domestic violence the defense is going to spin it as a scorned woman who's upset and days later she brings in coveralls with blood on them do you know what i'm saying like it does seem like she's kind of do you know what i mean so it's not it's not the best evidence being put forward i mean i don't give it a hundred and ten percent credibility because it is old evidence that has been touched by numerous people you don't know who and for all we know they could have put blood on the coveralls right so it's it's hard here but getting back to the station wagon It was seen on June 5th, early in the morning, before church services, because the station wagon is found in a church parking lot, and there's a man who puts flyers on people's cars while they're in at service, so early morning services. That car got the fly, had a flyer on it, so that means it was present for the early morning church service on Sunday, meaning that it would have had been, had to have been driven directly after the murders to Long Beach, California. Now, if you're looking at a map, Chino Hills is 130 miles north of Tijuana, Mexico. And Long Beach would be like heading southwest to the coast. So it's kind of like, it's it's slightly southwest. I would say it's more of a westward direction. If Kevin Cooper's goal was to get to Tijuana, Mexico, Unless he doesn't know the roads, which is a strong possibility, I feel like he would have traveled south versus westward. True. Do you see what well, I'm it's saying? Also in, 19, in the 1980s. Or he was trying if, to get to a boat to get to Mexico and thought that was safer to travel via boat. So he was trying to get to the coast to go to Mexico because he is going to be on a boat later on. Spoiler alert. So he might have found boat travel safer. So he wanted to get to the coast. 
It's possible. I don't know. There's two possibilities there. Yeah, there's there. two possibilities for sure. So the car is eventually found. It's seen by witnesses on June 7th, but it's it's officially found by police on June 8th. And that's when they're going to take the station wagon in for evidence. The car contained various bloodstains that most likely belonged to the victims. Several hairs were recovered from the vehicle. Two criminalists microscopically compared the hairs with the defendant's hair. One of the criminalists believed that one of the hairs probably came from someone of African-American descent. The only suspect who is of African-American descent is Kevin Cooper. However, both criminalists then state that they believe the hair is a pubic hair. There was also two rolled cigarette butts containing the Rollwright tobacco, which we know only comes from the Chino Institute for Men. It could only be determined that the saliva on the cigarette was given by a non-secretor. Now, Kevin Cooper is a non-secretor. And only... So when you give, like, bodily fluid samples, like whether it's your saliva or your semen you can be determined as a non-secretor or a secretor only 20 percent of the population make up non-secretors and kevin cooper is a non-secretor so i feel like it's a little the evidence is pointing towards the saliva on the cigarettes being kevin cooper's versus anyone else's because of that like chance is a little bit less because it's 20 percent of the population and lee furrows is a secretor okay i mean i see what you're saying many advocates for kevin cooper state that the evidence planted that there was evidence planted within the car. But again, I, along with most of America, I will say, was convinced watching Making a Murderer that all of that evidence was planted. And then now when you actually go through the case and you read the evidence and it's presented by people who are um, experts, you kind of see that you were duped a little bit into believing that that evidence was planted because the conspiracy to plant evidence is insane but i will say we'll find out that that police department does have a little bit of corruption right Uh, that's what i was actually going to say is that the difference between making a murderer and that investigation and this is that there is corruption within the department well i think there was corruption in both departments you know and and it's it's kind of weird i don't want to single out a department but i feel like it's been a known a known fact i guess that there's been so many wrong so many wrongdoings from the police departments within the state of california right and it's also well you have to think of the time period it's 1983 it's not 2019 right so i just feel like i mean that kind of gives it credence a little bit more you know it gives it credence i don't know i don't know if it's corruption or planting of evidence Or if it's lack of knowledge of what the future will hold. Do you know what I'm saying? We could be mishandling evidence right now in crimes that in 30 years, they're going to be like, oh, well, if you would have done this, we could have found out who the killer is. I get what you're saying. you know what I mean? I get what you're saying, but I I think there is a small lack of knowledge within a state that shouldn't. I mean, California is one of the lar- it, like one of the largest states in the country, right. with such a large population, and it has a lot of affluent people, and it's rich. And these police departments should be on top of their shit, whether it's 1983 or 2019. That's so true. So that's how I feel about it. And I just want to add, like, to be fair, the San Bernardino, like especially Chino Hills area, it's very rural. So there was 
a very minute amount of murders that took place. So this is kind of their, not only is this one of their first murder investigations that they're doing, but it's a massive murder investigation. So it's a, it's a big undertaking for them to take on. I think they also wanted to solve it pretty quickly. And sometimes when you want to solve something quickly, it's easy to put blinders on. And it's also easy easier to accuse an outsider than it is to accuse someone who lives in that community. Um, the chances of this happening, though, are just one in a million that you have a family that's murdered and an escaped convict living in the empty house next door. So you can't, everyone's mind is going to go there. Yeah, um, I, I, I'm, I'm always bad with this because like, we've done 55 cases now and it's like, I, I can't remember all of them. But there was one case that we covered where it was uh, something along the lines of it was either somebody running by the train tracks. Do you remember that case? I'm trying to think of it right now. Uh, it'll come to me. Well, it was the same thing where it was easy to just say, yeah, it was this person that was working the on the Villisca, railroad. Villisca Correct. Murders. Think about it. It's it's just a, a it's a it's like a, it's a crime of convenience or yes. uh, to blame it on someone because it's super freaking convenient. I feel like sometimes we have to look at it like that. It might be one in a million, but maybe this is the one in a million. No, I mean like it's 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 one in a million that it is Kevin Cooper is what I'm saying. Okay, right. Okay. You're trying to say that it's not him. Like it's the one in a million that it's not the escaped convict living in the house next door. That's what you're trying to say. Yes, that is what I'm trying to say. And wouldn't it be a knee slapper, you know? It's like, you know, what are the odds? Yeah. Well, based on the evidence collected, the San Bernardino police chose to issue a warrant for the arrest of Kevin Cooper after they interviewed and released Lee Furrows. Furrows was not required to take a polygraph test. Later on, when he's asked questions about this case, and he does finally talk to um, members of the media, he does claim that he took a polygraph test. However, he did not take a polygraph test while he was being interviewed by police, so that was a lie. He lied about the polygraph test, so most likely he might have failed that polygraph test. Probably. (laughs) While all of this is happening, Kevin Cooper is living under yet another alias. His name in Mexico is Angel Jackson. On June 9th, Cooper met fellow Americans Owen and Angelica Handy in Tijuana, Mexico. Cooper asked them if they had any possible work for him, and they said that they did. First, Owen Handy requested that Cooper, or Angel Jackson as he knew him, paint his boat, the Ilatica. Cooper agreed. After working on the boat for two days, the Handys began to trust Cooper. They asked him if he would like to set sail with them back to California and he could be their deckhand. Cooper agreed. They made several stops and then eventually went to Pelican Bay near Santa Barbara, where they stayed for four or five days. It was here that a woman claimed that she was raped at knife point by Kevin Cooper. Her sailboat was anchored close to the Handys, and she said that it was their deckhand, Angel Jackson, that had done this to her. When she was reporting the incident to the police and the Coast Guard, she saw a wanted poster of Kevin Cooper. Because now it's July 30th, so they had issued this warrant for him on June 9th. So he had been missing for over a month now at this point. So there was wanted posters everywhere. So she said, Angel Jackson is Kevin Cooper. So now, of course, they're like out to get him. As the Coast Guard makes their way to the boat to arrest Cooper, he actually takes the dinghy from the sailboat and tries to get away from them, but eventually jumps out of the boat and tries to swim ashore, but he was 
eventually captured by the Coast Guard. On August 1st, 1983, Cooper is arraigned and he pleads not guilty. On the same day, the sheriff's office destroys the coveralls provided by Roper as they no longer consider it evidence, which is absolutely ridiculous because whether or not you think furrows did it this is evidence and if you could test the blood on these coveralls they should have been tested in no way should any evidence ever be destroyed in a case ever oh i agree because what if that what if that specific piece of evidence that you had and you destroyed it was needed what if it was the break in the case or proved an innocence then you know this is what it comes down to too like um um, you know, you have all these programs and people who are pleading for people's innocence and trying to get them out of a situation, right? But maybe if you just didn't destroy evidence, that could have been it right there. Right, right. You know? And whenever the San Bernardino Sheriff's Office is asked about this, they get very upset, especially Floyd Tidwell. But you okayed something to be destroyed that was a key piece of evidence. And if you were so guaranteed of Kevin Cooper's guilt, then you should have kept it. Right, exactly. Use yeah. everything. Use everything that you have access to. That is just a common sense move. After the preliminary hearing, Cooper and his defense attorney put in for a change of venue because they believed that the current county had received too much press regarding the crime and Cooper himself and that any potential jury pool had been tainted. And I completely agree with that. The judge agrees and the California Judicial Council gives the judge the option of San Diego, Los Angeles, Sacramento or Alameda County. The judge chose San Diego County, which was the only county that Cooper's defense had opposed because they believed that the wealth of the county and the lack of minorities in the county would not allow for a fair trial. It's not a jury of his peers. I see what you're saying. Yeah. So they said they filed a motion against it being moved to San Diego and the judge denied it. So that's one of the appeals that Kevin Cooper does use. Hmm. Okay, so now I'm going to do um, a breakdown of what was presented at the trial using only the court documents. Um, so we have the trial transcript. So what was presented in court and how, like, that's what I want to focus on. I'm going to talk about what was determined afterwards after this. Like, I just kind of want to go through what the first trial said. The prosecution had various items of circumstantial evidence that tied Cooper to the crime scene and the murders, but the following was also presented. There were fingerprints of Cooper's found at the lease house. The lease house was in view of the Ryan house. Actually, the bedroom that Cooper slept in overlooked the Ryan house. They then presented evidence and testimony regarding the calls made from the lease house by Cooper. One of the women testified and a statement from the other woman was read. The bloodstains from within the lease house were presented as the blood in the bathroom and the rugs were, and so was a bloodstained rope. So all of these blood evidence of the lease house was presented. The hatchet was then entered into evidence, as was the blood and hairs found on the hatchet. The blood and hairs seemed to have belonged to the victims, and this was understood both by the prosecution and the defense. The hair specifically, they believe, belonged to Doug and Jessica Ryan as their hairs had reddish tints. Larry Lease is asked if anything is missing from his house. He testifies that he is missing a buck knife, one or more ice picks, and a hatchet. Wow. It was also presented that an empty hatchet sheath was found in the bedroom that Cooper was staying in. The next piece of evidence is of high contention. 
the shoe prints. Investigators found three significant shoe print impressions, a partial sole impression on the spa cover outside of the Ryan's master bedroom, a partial bloody shoe print on a sheet on the Ryan's bedroom waterbed. Pretty cool that they had a waterbed side Waterbeds note. are pretty cool. Yeah, they are. And nearly complete shoe print impression in the game room of the lease house. So shoe print basically on top of their hot tub cover on one of their sheets and in the game room of their house. And it was presented that Cooper had been issued the same shoe that was present in all three shoe prints. It was a shoe that was sold to the minimum security prison that he had escaped from. They were called the Dude Pro Ked Shoe. The Stride Right Corporation sells Pro Ked tennis shoes to the state for use at certain institutions, one of them being CIM. The general merchandise manager for StrideRight testified that the pattern is not found on any other shoe that the company manufactures, nor to his knowledge, which he claims is extensive, on any other shoe. The shoes are not sold in retail, but only to states and federal government. So basically, like, that has to be Kevin Cooper's shoe. Okay. However, I will just add right now because I can't not add it because I know people who are familiar with this case are probably screaming at us right now. It does come out later that that man was incorrect. That shoe was being sold by Sears. However, what a lot of people don't know or fail to recognize is the fact that this San Bernardino County, especially the Chino Hills area, is extremely rural. So the sale of the dude Proked shoe was minuscule at best. So it's not like everyone in the county was wearing this shoe. They're more like cowboy boot wearing people. Right, I see what you're saying. Do you know what I mean? No but the bottom, but yeah, they're more of like a basketball shoe. Right, but the bottom line is that it was being sold at retail at Sears. Correct, and that man, the evidence that was presented to the jurors was that it was not. Right. That it was only Kevin Cooper that could have made those imprints. Which is wrong. To be used Correct. as evidence when you don't even Correct. have your facts straight. The same impressions were left at the lease house. I think this is more telling than the shoe itself. Whoever was staying at the lease house, which Kevin Cooper admitted to doing, also made impressions at the Ryan house. I think the shoe itself is talked about too much. And it's more of the impression that we need to find. Do you know what I'm saying? Yes. Because Lee Furrows never went to the lease house. But these impressions were there. I get what you're saying. So William Bard, who is the manager of the San Bernardino County Crime Laboratory, compared the shoe print impressions from the Ryan and Lee's houses to each other, to the type of shoe issued to the defendant, and to other shoes in general. He concluded that the three shoe prints all possessed a similar tread pattern, which could indicate a similar type shoe was used in each case. They are consistent with one another and could have been caused by the same shoe. The pattern is similar to the dude tennis shoe and is anywhere between a size 9.5 to a 10. Kevin Cooper wears a size 10. Bard searched the area stores, so all the stores in the area, for a similar sole pattern and couldn't find one. The defendant testified that his shoe size was between a 9 and 10, but he wouldn't like say, but we know for a fact that he's a size 10. Bard believed that the shoes that made all three impressions at the lease house, at, at the Ryan house, and the impressions left at the lease house were the same shoe. That's what he testified. Okay. 
Okay, so now let's talk blood samples. And here we're going to get really technical, but please remember that I have my undergraduate in history. I am in no way uh, someone who can analyze blood evidence, so I only know what I've read, and I'm just going to try and convey it to you in the simplest terms possible. All of the blood samples taken from the Ryan house could have come from one or more of the victims. However, there was a single drop of blood found on the hallway wall opposite of the master bedroom. Using a process called electrophoresis, a criminalist with the San Bernardino County Sheriff's Department determined the type of enzymes which are present in blood, and it can be used to exclude or include someone from a blood sample. And this is the process that was used to determine if the sample could have belonged to the victims. So the first testing of this one tiny drop of blood was used to first determine that it didn't belong to any of the victims. The same criminalist then determined that it did match the enzymes of Cooper because the enzymes showed a characteristic that is found in African Americans. However, the prosecution knew that there had been a lab mistake, so they tried to get ahead of it and they asked about the discrepancy in the lab notes of the criminalist who tested the sample of blood. They asked about it. At first, the criminalist incorrectly identified Cooper's enzyme type as B. However, it turns out that he is really enzyme type RB, which is very similar but more rare to type B. Once he found this out, once he found out he like made an error, he called the expert employed from the defense and asked him to do further testing with him because it was only one drop of blood. There was really only two more tests that were able to get done on that drop of blood. So they do further testing, and the enzyme type that they did was actually inconclusive. That's interesting. Yeah, so there, there's one more test that could be done on that drop of blood. One more. And we know that that does get done in 2001, but we'll get there. So after this, evidence from the station wagon was presented to the jury. The prosecution was saving the testimony of Josh Ryan for last. The emotional testimony and eyewitness account of a nine-year-old boy regarding the death of his family and his best friend was going to be, without a doubt, emotionally swaying to the jury. Well, Josh himself never testified. Both prosecution and defense agreed that it would be more traumatizing for the boy. His testimony came in two forms. The first was an audio tape from December 1st, 1983, in which his treating psychiatrist interviewed him. The second was a videotape from December 9th, 1984, where the boy was questioned by both the prosecution and the defense. It is important to note that when Josh first gave his information to the police, it was done so in a hospital room. The boy still could not speak because of the wounds on his neck. The police communicated with him by having the boy squeeze their hand. For example, they ask where, for example, they ask, was the person who did this white or black? And the boy squeezed his hand at white. When he asked how many people did it and the detective started counting, Josh squeezed his hand when he got to the number three. However, this information was not considered testimony at trial. Therefore, it could only be referenced by the defense attorney. Only the following was heard by the jury. Josh stated that just before the family had left for the barbecue at the Blade House, that three Mexican men came to the ranch looking for work. Josh had never seen them before, and he remembers his father saying there wasn't any work for them. 
He then recalls the family returning from the barbecue in their family truck. Josh said that he and Chris were sleeping in sleeping bags on the floor in his bedroom. When the two boys went to sleep, he knew that his parents were in their bedroom and that his sister Jessica was in hers. At some point during the night, Josh woke up but then fell back asleep again. He was reawoken a short time after by a scream that he identified to be his mother's. Josh woke Chris up and they walked down the hall, stopping at the laundry room. Josh saw Jessica lying in the hallway. The boys walked closer to his parents' room and he claimed to see a shadow or something by the bathroom. He couldn't remember. It was very dark. He couldn't see what the shadow was or what it was doing. And this is when Josh said the boys were starting to get a little scared. Just so sad. Josh started to look around and he heard Chris call his name twice from the bedroom. The next thing he says, he remembers waking up and the sun was coming up and his neck was bleeding. His parents were dead on either side of him. In a videotaped interview, the only new information learned is that when Josh walked into his parents' bedroom, he saw someone by the bed and he said he saw the person turn his back on him and he just saw the person's back and hair. After his mother stopped screaming and Josh saw him, the man, went into the laundry room. After his mother stopped screaming and Josh saw him, the man went into the laundry room and hid behind the door. Chris then went into the parents' bedroom and he was gone. Josh said he followed Chris into the bedroom after hearing him yell his name twice and then he just remembers being knocked out from behind. So obviously what they think happened is the person hit him once in the head with the knife and then slashed his throat and then went on to Chris. He said he thought that the person was a man, and when asked why, he said because women usually don't do that sort of thing. Okay, this this is what I'm going to say. I'm not trying to discredit his testimony at all. All I want to say, though, is that we, both of us, Kay, know that eyewitness testimony is just, just garbage, in my opinion. Well, that's what I was going to say. Like, when you said that, I was thinking, but it is so discredited. It is discredited. On top of that, if... Any one of us or any one of our listeners can go and watch the video and everyone will have a different opinion. From my perspective, when I watch the video, I feel like I want to say he's being barraged with a bunch of loaded questions. Some of them, I don't want to say every single question asked, but a lot of them were like very like like leading him to an answer. Mm -hmm. And I find that not genuine. Now, it it could maybe they tried to make him feel comfortable because he is a boy. I don't know. But that kind of rubbed me the wrong way. Also, I know he was in the... I know he was in the room with a a psychiatrist, was it? Yeah. But at the end of the day, he's still a poor kid that's being forced to relive the awful moments and experience that he had. I think that there's several things that come into the memory and testimony of Josh Ryan. First... He was woken from his sleep, so you're already disoriented. You are an eight-year-old boy. He's he's only eight years old. I think that an eight-year-old's interpretation of watching the murder of his family is not going to be reliable because I don't think he has the ability to even process what's happening, especially at night in the dark. His, His memory is very fuzzy, and... He claims to not even know what this person looks like. Um, he, do- he says he doesn't know how many people were there and that the only reason he initially told the police three Mexicans or three white guys was because 
he he's saying now he just remember like he just assumed that it was those three people because those are the last three people that had come to his house and that's how an eight-year-old thinks we know from the last case we just covered that you can have a victim that has head trauma that says three white guys attacked me and it was one black man right but that's what but this is what i'm saying is that it's an eight-year-old kid and they're trying to get blood from a stone he doesn't he cannot recall what race of this Per one, two, or three people it was. I agree. It's 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 unfair to even use that and present that in court. I don't think... I know that they had to use Josh Ryan's testimony because they knew if they didn't, it would be used in the appeal process. But I don't think that Josh Ryan's testimony is reliable, nor do I think um, it should have been entered into evidence. But the reason why the prosecution's going to want to do this is not because of what Josh Ryan is saying, but because he is reliving the death of his parents, his sister, and his best friend in front of the jury, which is going to now add this emotional factor that the jury is never going to be able to forget. So in the forefront of their mind is this tragedy versus putting someone away. Right. And that and it goes into that I just don't think that our court system is... Look, no court system or whatever you want to call it is foolproof. It, you know, it's not nothing is ever one hundred percent a lockdown. There's always going to be some sort of loophole or just crack that things fall through. Mm-hmm. I get that, but I feel like there's just a lot of things in this case that are overlooked, not investigated. Things that are used in court that don't really shed any light on it. They're pulling at the heartstrings of the of the jur- of the jury. Which, which I do understand because for a whole, an entire family was massacred and the boy's best friend. I get that. You do, you do want to remind people that four people died and one boy was almost killed. I understand. But like you said before, it was a jury of, it's supposed to be a jury of like-minded peers, correct? Mm-hmm. Like-minded people that correct. were similar. That's not the case here. So from the start of this, I, I'm kind of like... I'm hesitant to put my trust into it because are we really trying to find the right person? Because we're bringing saying. evidence into this courtroom that doesn't seem fair. <laughs> and right. and well, like you said, I am not I am not an expert. Mm-hmm. I'm just clearly just bringing these things to the to light for other people to make a decision. Well, I will say that Josh Ryan's testimony is going to in in a way help the defense because it brings into question whether or not the police had a one-track mind when it came to finding Kevin Cooper guilty of this murder. Because during the defense's questioning of Josh, they asked him about what he originally said. And Josh Ryan does admit that he remembers talking or kind of like doing a interview with OC, he calls him. And he's referring to Detective Hector Ocampo. He says that he did tell O.C. that he thought three men had done it because he just remembered the three Mexicans from earlier in the night and that he thought it was them. But he never really saw three people that night. But he saw a shadow or shadows. And Josh Ryan says he can't remember how many he saw. Um, Even now, Josh Ryan, as an adult, says that he wishes more than anything that he could remember what happened that night. Yeah, but that's it's really clear. Sad. It's clear that he cannot remember. And I'd rather someone say they don't know than say they do. Right. No, you're right. And I do feel horrible for him and um, the loss of his 
you know, his family, his friends. It's it's sad. And I will say the the um, emotional testimony from Josh hurt the defense more than any physical evidence could. And there's little the defense team can do to combat this during the interview because they don't want to appear like they're being tough on the victim. However, Cooper's team does come out swinging when it's their turn, especially in reference to the handling of the crime scene and the investigation in general. So I just want to add this slight caveat. I think that the defense team could have created more of a reasonable doubt 100% during the trial, but based based on what I read, I don't blame that on the defense team, rather their lack of knowledge when it came to all of this scientific testing that was done. And at the time, it all seemed circumstantial, so I think they wrote off the scientific testing as being circumstantial. They focused on the mishandling of the case, which I agree was the smartest route for them to go because it was grossly mismanaged. First, I don't think the police had a true understanding of how bad this crime was and how monumental this trial was to become. Through an experienced forensic scientist, the defense team tried to rip apart the investigation. Their first attack was on the crime scene itself, where over 70 people were able to walk around leaving hair and foot imprints everywhere. The expert ultimately testifying that all evidence collected at the Ryan and Lee's house was compromised. The second thing that was brought up was the fact that the district attorney ordered that the Ryan bedroom slash main crime scene be dismantled before the sheriff's investigators could collect blood and other evidence that could have proved several things, including how many people were involved in the attack, whether the Ryans fought back, and how the family truly died. When the sheriff's department dismantled the Ryans' bedroom, taking it down to the studs, they put the walls, floor, and carpet into a non-air-conditioned storage shed, resulting in all of that evidence being effectively destroyed for forensic purposes. I mean, that's crazy. I mean, the fact that they are continually to mismanage evidence is insane. I can't I can't even, like, wrap my brain around that. Honestly, I'll say I've never heard of the dismantling of an entire crime scene, period, especially before the collection of evidence. So that's, it's very bizarre. Yeah. The sheriff was also asked if he questioned Lee Furrows. He said yes. And then he asked if the coveralls were destroyed. The answer again was yes. Finally, defense asked the sheriff about the blonde hair found in the hair of Jessica and if it had been tested. And he said no. So this hasn't been brought up before, but in Jessica's hands, she's clutching blonde hairs. And these hairs have never been tested. I know that it is impossible without follicles to test the DNA of a hair or to make a comparison, but the fact that she had blonde hair in her hands and the person they're accusing of this murder is an African-American, clearly not with blonde hair, at just a basic basic level it should have been. Right. Um, And even to go a little bit more in-depth into that hair, what I don't understand is, let's, like, there could have been more done with that hair because... Yeah, you're right. Like you said, there's there could, you know if there's no follicle, it's a little harder. But who's to say that she didn't grab at somebody and get you know skin cells or some sort of other you know evidence that could be used when she grabbed for the hair or something during a struggle, perhaps. Right. Exactly. And, and, and like these are things that were not looked into. Well, and should have been going. tested. Right. Right. Cooper did testify regarding his past and the fact that he was at the lease house but that he's saying he never entered the Ryan house. 
Several character witnesses for Cooper are also going to be put on the stand saying that they believed he was a good person. In their closings, the prosecution brought up Cooper's criminal past, including the rape allegations, both of them. And the defense also reiterated their belief that the crime scene was tampered with. I mean, I'm just going to stop here. I know that some people see the Kevin Cooper case as a railroading against this man, but I mean, we're not just my personal like belief here is that this is a this is a man who will not accept a prison sentence because he's tried to escape 12 times and has two successfully done so and when he does escape and he gets a new alias he continues to commit crimes and i know that most of them are burglaries but he's committed two rapes at knife point both of them so i mean this isn't like this innocent man who's being railroaded here. This is a yeah. criminal. Yeah, I mean, I think I'm, uh, the only thing that I'll say... He's not doing himself favors. Right, no, I'll just say this just to play devil's advocate, just to give another side to this, is that, yes, you're 100% right. I would be lying to myself if I said that I thought this guy was completely innocent. Let's not get that twisted. I mean, I think uh, so far in this episode, I've tried to defend him a little bit here. And the reason for that is... They were, no. they've destroyed everything. The police evidence. department was horrific but in their investigation. Let, um, all the acts that he's committed, he's broken, he's, you know, broken out of jail before, um, a, you know, um, you know, two rape allegations at knife point, um, burglaries, many of them. So this is not an innocent guy, and I don't like how it's being portrayed as such, especially current day, right now, even. Um, but it is something that needs to be said that. That doesn't mean he's a murderer. Like, it's very different. We have to make sure that, that. We, that we classify it, that it's different and that he needs to be tried for that. So, sorry to just do our... I, like, jumped in there. Well, yeah, I you want to save some for the end, Yeah, we too, have to because, do that, okay. for sure. So, the prosecution is going to bring up his rape allegations, and the defense is going to reiterate their belief that the crime scene was tampered with, that they believe the police planted evidence, and they believe that they didn't do their due diligence and investigating this crime. And that's something I can agree with, though, is that I think they had tunnel vision. Sometimes this happens with investigations where it's one person and nothing else will be looked at. And I think that's made abundantly clear, especially by the discarding of the coveralls. Yeah. After all the evidence was heard, the jury deliberated. They found that Kevin Cooper was guilty of four counts of first-degree murder and one count of attempted murder with the intentional infliction of great bodily injury. During the penalty phase of the trial, a stipulation was entered during the penalty phase of Cooper's trial in which the abduction and rape of the female minor on October 8, 1982 was brought up and put into his sentencing. He kidnapped her and later raped her at Frock Park. The death penalty was imposed. After the sentencing, the case became very controversial and included many arguments about race and class struggle in the United States. How could the mismanagement of the crime scene lead to a death penalty conviction? I completely agree with that. Yeah. I understand, okay, that I understand him being found guilty based on the evidence that was that was given to the jury. In that case, I see him them saying you're guilty. I do. But I think that the defense was so right in saying they didn't even investigate anybody else. They didn't care about any of this stuff. And evidence was being thrown at them about Lee Furrows. This is a man who has killed someone before. And the only thing you do is question him and you throw out a piece of evidence that might link him to the crime. So I think because it was so, the scene was so mismanaged and it was a tunnel vision investigation, the death penalty should have, shouldn't, shouldn't have been on the table. 
it's it's not without a reasonable doubt. That's reasonable doubt. I mean, no, I completely understand. I think it, it it's weird. I think it was because they knew that he was high risk of escape again, and that's why they maybe yeah, did but, that. No, but then you're in maximum security prison. I no, mean, I hear you. I'm just saying well, I, there's no reason for it, so I'm trying to come up with something. But yeah. I guess there really isn't. I mean, I would say they probably lumped in his life into this versus right. just this one crime. In 2004, a juror is actually going to give a statement about the verdict that was handed down. She said the crime scene photos are still emblazoned in her head and that overall she feels that this is something that everyone forgets when they talk about the innocence of Kevin Cooper. Four people were killed and an eight-year-old boy's throat was slashed. She said during the trial, the physical and circumstantial evidence was overwhelming and she talks mainly about the shoe prints being at the Lee's house and being at the Ryan house. You can't say you were never at the Ryan house if your shoe prints are in the house. I agree. That, you're, that is I true. I mean, c- come on. You can't get around that. And um, she said that evidence was overwhelming. And the jurors that she has kept in touch with still feel the same way that Kevin Cooper was guilty. Do they think he acted alone? Some of them say, no, he had to have acted with somebody else. I don't see Kevin Cooper acting with other people, though. He's on the run, and he just escaped from prison. I don't see him making any friends quickly. I mean, that that's true. You know, I, uh, it's silly to me. However, as the years went on, there was a lot of things that were called into question regarding the evidence in the Cooper case. Many celebrities and advocates got involved on the side of Cooper. Some swore by his innocence, and some just advocated that the evidence get tested. Especially, you know, this is going to start like in 2000. There's going to be a big push to get evidence retested for inmates who are on death row. Now that we have the technology, why aren't we testing this DNA evidence? We need to exonerate people that we may be killing for no reason. I mean, come on. It's ridiculous. At the time, year 2000, just test the evidence. Yeah, I mean, I'm all for that because, I mean, that's just... That's just doing your due diligence. So some pieces of information or evidence that came out after his conviction is the fact that the shoes that made the imprint were in fact in retail stores. There were officer fingerprints found in the closet. Now, advocates believe that fingerprints found in the closet show that the evidence was planted. I kind of disagree with this. There were 70 plus people. You're telling me someone didn't put their hand against a wall? I don't think it's I don't think it shows oh my god without a doubt they planted evidence does it show that an officer was looking in the closet and put his hand on the wall yeah yeah listen you're going to have those people I know that look for it's just they're gonna I know. it's going to happen and evidence also not evidence but the fact that Furrow's stepmother lives 5 miles from where the station wagon was dumped was found out after the trial Years after the trial, it was also revealed that the sheriff, Floyd Tidwell, was prosecuted for stealing over 500 guns from the sheriff department's property room. He pled guilty so he didn't have to face prison time. So this sheriff is not an innocent guy. He is, he's a shady cop. But see, but now, now do you understand why there's people out there would suggest planting of, of yes, things? Yes, 100%. Because that is something that just can't, like, mm-hmm. that came out, that... You know, makes people go a little insane. Do I think Kevin Cooper is a career criminal? Yes, I do. Do I think that Floyd Tidwell was a dirty cop that couldn't be trusted? Yes, I do. But who was wrong in this case? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So witnesses also came out and stated that they saw Furrows and two others in bloody clothing at the bar. However, they were approached by sheriff officers who told them not to testify about that. So they're quieting witnesses. 
Advocates also say evidence relating to Cooper was planted by police officers within the car and in the lease house. Cooper has maintained his innocence and has many people supporting him. Josh Ryan, now older, states that he wishes he could remember what happened, but he just can't. He credits his grandmother with raising him and giving him stability. His maternal grandmother maintains that she does think Cooper is guilty, however, she does not believe that he acted alone. In fact, she has been paying private investigators to watch Furrows, who now lives on the East Coast. They report back to her every once in a while. The Hughes family maintains that Cooper is the sole killer of the Ryan family and their son. And in 2001, Cooper and his advocates petitioned to have DNA testing done on key pieces of evidence that still exist. One was the tan shirt and one was a drop of blood found in the Ryan's house. The other was a cigarette butt found in the car. All three pieces of evidence were tested and they all came back as DNA links to Kevin Cooper. Advocates argue that this evidence was planted. Okay, so I just want to say, I know that we always do our best to find legitimate information for you guys. Now, for all the all the activists that state that it was planted, um, they claim that it, the reason why they think that is because to from this is from the, uh, the activists. This is not. I'm not saying that this is an actual fact or yeah, not. Yeah, it's what they say. Right, they're saying that um, when they tested the shirt. They found something called EDTA, and EDTA is actually a blood preservative found in test vials. So what they're trying to say is when they tested the shirt, yes, it came back as Kevin Cooper's blood, but the preservative was found in the blood on the shirt. Now, my question is, when you have evidence, like say, for example, you have a bloody shirt that has blood on it, would the police put that edta on that to preserve the blood sample no because they well from what i was reading uh-huh. uh, separate from the case edt i believe is put in the vial first then the sample of blood is taken and put in okay. the edta uh, so the it's EDTA. only used for vials of blood correct or the test tubes okay so what they're trying to say is that they must have like used the sample or pulled it out from a vial and then you know, and then planted it through the tube, like using the mm-hmm. blood in the tube, because that's the only way the blood would get EDTA on it, because that's what keeps the blood fresh. It's a preservative. Well, what about, but the blood drop from the, I wonder how the blood drop was preserved from the crime scene. I don't know. I mean, I'm was not. Was that in a vial? I mean, think about it. If if they were to swab, I guarantee it's you they prob- would swab it off of where it was right, from. Right. Then it was probably put in EDTA. Right. So then that would make sense. So that, that would, would make it. sense for them to say this shit was planted. No, well, no, I'm no. just saying this is for their case. I'm saying like I'm not. No, what I'm saying is that blood drop might have been EDTA might have been added to the blood drop that was taken from the wall to right. preserve it. Right. Right. So, of course, it's going to be in the sample. Yeah, like I said, I I'm only I want also yeah. the 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 cigarette butt. That's saliva. That's not blood. Correct. So I guess they're only referencing the tan shirt. I think they're ta- uh, the tan T-shirt. Yeah. Yeah. I just thought I'd let everybody know that little tidbit, whether or not that's legitimate or not. Right. Right. It's just something to consider because these are what these activists are using to, to prove his innocence. Is this 
EDTA. Well, Cooper was scheduled to be executed on February 10th, 2004. And his execution was stayed eight hours before it was supposed to take place. Let's talk about the last hour. A three-judge panel voted, and one judge dissented to the execution and was able to get enough judges outside the panel to advocate for an en banc ruling. And this is a ruling decided by several judges and is reserved for unusually complex cases. They decided that the execution should be blocked until further DNA testing could be done. Cooper's pleas for clemency have not been granted by any of the governors of California. As of 2018, Kim Kardashian West has become interested in the case after an in-depth investigation was held by a New York Times investigative journalist. She and others were asking for the testing of one more key piece of evidence that they believe could hold a key to the case. Ten-year-old Jessica Ryan was holding a handful of blonde hair. They believe it could be linked to Lee Furrows, and they want it tested. Governor Brown, before he left office in California, approved for the testing of the blonde hair in Jessica's hands and three other key pieces of evidence to be submitted for retesting. And those evidence were submitted for retesting on February 22nd of 2019. So we're still awaiting the results from that. Um, I do have to say that this is a very interesting case because as much as I, I like to believe the Occam's razor explanation that all things that are most obvious tend to be true, the fact that that, I mean, the chances of an es- a violent escaped convict being housed next to a family who gets murdered, it's kind of like, oh my God, I mean, how could you, how could your mind not go there? But the fact that this case has garnered so much attention from people who understand forensics a lot more than I do, and judges who understand the penal codes and understand and have seen cases more than I have are are questioning what took place shows me that there is a reasonable doubt that he committed these crimes. And and when reasonable doubt is present, I think that at the very least, the death penalty should be taken off of the table. So I don't think it's fair that he's had to fight to stay alive. Yeah. And look, I mean, I think that everyone has a right to their opinion about especially something to this magnitude. But I think that's what makes us all human. Not everyone's going to agree with what should be done with Kevin Cooper, but I think that you and I have done the best that we can to provide um, some of the facts and information. We can, and we've tried to do like kind of both sides of, um, is he innocent? Is he guilty? So we tried to cover both sides of it as best as we can. I don't know what my final opinions are. I just think the thing I could say without a doubt is that I don't think he should have been given the death penalty based on the gross mismanagement of the crime scene in the investigation. That should have been off the table. But and also, I mean, look at Lee Furrow's history. He killed somebody before. I don't. But then I don't think that Lee Furrow's really what would have the deal that was done with the horses with Clarence Allen happened before 1974 what would make him so angry that he now wants to kill them in 1983 i mean nothing that we looked into or said right. today would even give a reason to do what was done like there's to that no family. reason this was done so no. that's what's so crazy no i i do get your side of it i really do i think the like i said the biggest thing is there 
is evidence that shows mismanagement of cr- the crime scene. Um, and that really, you know, has always been a problem for me. Because, I mean, if yeah. we're, you know, if the justice system is supposed to be, oh, well, just, then the evidence needs to be handled the pro- you know, properly. I do think that it was easy for the San Bernardino County Sheriff's Office to say, like, hey, here's a guy who's different than us, right? Not only, I mean, take it, take out the fact that he's a criminal, a career criminal, but here's a guy who's African-American. He's an outsider. This is a mainly white community. And of course, none, none of us would have done this. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So it was the outsider. And I think it's, it's always easier and more settling for a community to understand that an outsider committed a crime versus someone on the inside of their community because then that makes them question their safety even after the killer's caught. Right. I understand what you mean. And I think that's what happened here. And I think a lot of people would agree. But I think it could have been Kevin Cooper very easily because even after he left the lease house, he was still, he still raped, tried to wait for someone at knife point. And changed his alias to two other times. Right. So. So, I mean, this is a guy who definitely needed to be taken off of the streets of the United States. Once again, he's in prison. And I look at it this way. He is in prison for multiple burglaries. He is in prison for two. Escape uh, Escape multiple times you know I'm, I'm just saying you know two rape allegations they're they're all you know at least well, the, no the first one yes he did it. okay he said he did okay so you know the second agri- one i don't know, think she made it up I no mean, i don't think so i don't think so either but i'm saying like there are things that he's in prison for so until the evidence for the murder is kind of brought to light right. then he belongs where he is i am bottom line eagerly awaiting this DNA results that are going to come out and if none of it is linked to Kevin Cooper I will gladly eat crow because I would rather be wrong than see someone die yeah for for nothing right absolutely that's what would be happening um we hope you enjoyed this case and if you really if you don't agree with what I said please go easy on me because sometimes sometimes it could be a little rough <laughs> so that's what we're just i'm just a little bit nervous about <laughs> hey listen we tried but to we do, covered both yeah. sides and and we hope you can at least agree to that and we tried to bring you all of the evidence that was present in this case and i think we did a good job being down the middle yeah we I tried really do. i think we tried the best we could you did yeah okay so next weekend we have another patreon episode coming out so patreons who donate five dollars and up can look forward to that and we also started doing our polling on Patreon. So your Patreon or our Patreon supporters have already chosen the next cases that are up. So we're excited to bring those to you. So again, if you like the podcast, you can subscribe, rate and review five star reviews um, requested, please. And if you really want to, you can join our Patreon page and that's patreon.com slash true crime couple. All right. Bye, guys. Bye, guys.